Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co host here, Dave Popowich. How you doing? Yeah, well, growing concerns, right? Watching with um, concern what's happening in Ukraine. It is a concern. Um, I'm concerned about you. Mm. You're wearing a tie mm-hmm. on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really worried. Well, I've got to keep the audience guessing, right? And you should see my socks. You want to read, you want to read what my socks I, are? Actually, okay. For those of you who, are, who can't see this, <laughs> oh, my Lord. Okay. <laughs> so this is, he's got these funky socks. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up with Popwitch with my funky socks. My funky socks are sticks and pucks. So hockey sticks and pucks. Um, Dave's says, I left the seat up for you. Well, I live in a house dominated by women. As do I, but I don't own those socks. <laughs> yeah, well, you should. No. Maybe this will be your Christmas no, present. No, I, I would never leave the seat up, ever. <laughs> I, I, no. I'm fighting back as best I can. You I don't are, win. You are, a, you are a man of resistance. That's right. There you <laughs> That's right, exactly. If you're You're craving it, I'm resisting right now. That's right. I have have succumbed to that. (laughs) I don't even lift the seat now. Say, forget it. It's not I've been I've been wearing all these things. I was hoping you'd see it. It's right in my 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 side of my right in my face, right there. I can't I can't miss it. These are ugly socks. Let's say I left the seat up for you, Maddie, Dave's wife. I apologize. Oh yeah, I should have warned you about this before you married this man. She's a special girl, that one for she, sure. Yeah, well, you're the special <laughs> one. She just tolerates you. <laughs> All right, listen. That was a fun start to a pretty, uh, a pretty tough uh, so, a show that we've got to do today because yeah. we've got the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on for a couple of uh, segments. We've got to talk a little bit about where we are in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict. Um, where does Canada fit? W- yeah, what role do we play? Um, not just politically, humanitarian. Also economically. Correct. Right? Uh, and what should we be thinking about? And where, where might this go from here? Can, can I just say one thing about this entire conflict? People are going to be reading and seeing stuff on different mediums. Mm-hmm. Either conventional media, on listening to podcasts, on social media. Can we please take a bit of scrutiny on any type of information being sent our mm-hmm. way? I'll give you an example. This really bothers me. Um, there was a picture of a young girl yelling at a military official um, and they labeled it as Ukrainian child yells at Russian um, military um, soldier. soldier. The actual picture was of a Palestinian girl yelling at a Israeli soldier. Right. They took that same picture and turned it into the Ukraine fight. Right. That is BS. Right. That's happening everywhere. So please, make sure you take every piece of information with the utmost scrutiny. Right. Do your due diligence and homework on this because there is gonna be a lot of misinformation out yeah. there. Yeah. And it's not only social media. Right. The amount of conventional media prof- uh, professionals around the world with different groups talking about the misinformation that's happening is amazing to me. Right. Well, it comes out so quickly. The, 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 the nature of this conflict changes so quickly. I think that's an excellent point. So thanks so, for bringing so that So let's, let's take that and segue to what I think, 
is going to happen in the markets. I think we've seen this week specifically, um, it's called forget about everything but the conflict. Mm -hmm. We had record numbers when it comes to jobs in the U.S., great numbers coming out. The interest rate information, haha, guess what? We're raising interest rates in the U.S., it's coming. We raised interest rates in Canada. The economic numbers are looking good, retail's looking good, sales are looking good, things are looking good, and I think people have forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. Because the focus is on this conflict and potential war. Right. So I get it. But what I think, and you and I debated about this on Friday, um, maybe we should let our listeners listen to this debate that we have. I don't think the markets have fully priced in this conflict. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we've done a lot of research around um, past conflicts all the way back to World War II. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, there, obviously there's a whole bunch of different kinds of conflicts in there. Um, but the average, uh, the average dislocation in markets from a time perspective is not particularly long, and the average fall on using the S&P 500 as that benchmark is not particularly deep. But there's some differences amongst the different kinds of conflicts, right? Um, the market is, what is fair to say is the market is trying to price the war impact on global economy right now, right? So the volatility we're seeing is the pricing mechanism. Same time trying to really get our head around what inflation is because that's, that's the, uh, the path of interest rate increases, right? So it's going to be tough to tear those two things apart on any given day. Um, but right now, I would say you did reference several interesting good pieces of news throughout this course of week from an economic perspective. I would throw in there that wage inflation in the United States was far below what was expected in that jobs Correct. report as well. Correct. So there's, there is some positive news, but clearly being overshadowed by the uncertainty and the fear around what this war might become. It's funny how you change the word from conflict to war. Mm. Well, not funny. It's interesting. Um, here it comes. And so... What I think the markets are not pricing is what I see in other areas of different types of markets. Let's take the currency market. The flood to um, Swiss franc <clears throat> versus the euro. Mm -hmm. Why do people go to Swiss franc? Security. Safety, security, yep. The price of gold. Why do people run to gold? Yep. One reason is security. Safety, yep. Um, so I think what the currency and commodity markets are saying is not necessarily what the equity markets are saying. The fixed income market, we're seeing 10-year treasury well below the 2%, even though the economic numbers mm -hmm. are looking really good. Right. There's already been a, hey, everybody, interest rates are going up for sure. Right. Well, we've already seen it in Canada, as you correctly pointed out. We've seen it. Started. So we had a, a bond market saying pre-conflict, pre-war, we're going up and we're going up fast. Now the, mar the bond market's saying we're going up, but maybe not that fast. Right. But you've still got bond prices under pressure because of the fear trade out of equity into bonds, right? So we are seeing some of that. So you're getting a bunch of mixed signals and it's not transpiring into the markets or transferring into the markets as panic. Now, here's where I think the, the, um, the unknown is. When we go look back at our history of research, Dave, when we can look at previous conflicts, what isn't overlapped is the money supply. Right. We have been on a 
tear of supplying liquidity into Correct. the market. Yep. U.S., Canada, Europe, wherever. And now they're trying to taper this off. They're reducing the liquidity at the same time there's a conflict. So if there's less liquidity, shouldn't the volatility go up? Yeah, it should. Uh, but I, again, we could look at the Bank of Canada backing off on their quantitative tightening. We did raise rates, right? There's a, lots of discussion about how aggressive, how quick they'll be. I can tell you that central banks are talking very tough right now, and it's absolutely necessary that they do that. Because if, they, if they're successful in sort of their moral suasion, their ability to talk interest rates a higher, yeah. right, and slow inflation versus having to act that way, that would be a, a pretty acceptable outcome for them. There's a tightrope to walk here over the next, well, this year, really. Uh, face a lots of questions, obviously, about what's happening, Russia, Ukraine, um, not just the humanitarian side, but what will it mean economically? What does it mean for Canada? What does it mean for the, you know, the global economy as a whole? Yeah, we, there's a lot of questions, like you said, and the big question that's, that's going around on different social media platforms, um, private chats and so forth is, is this WW3? Right. Is this actually going to happen? Are we going to get to that point that we've had fear for for so many decades? Mm -hmm. And um, let, let's see if we're going to actually lead to that, that situation. Let's explore it a little bit and hope the answer is not that it is, uh, you know, the likely outcome of WW3. We've got a terrific guest today, David Perry, President, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, First of all, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Here's the mission of the Institute. I'm going to read it. I know you know it, but just for our viewers and our listeners. The mission is to identify Canadian global interests and promote more active and effective international involvement through rigorous strategic and policy analysis. All right, we're going to need a lot of help on this area of policy analysis and the strategy, given what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. Faisal, before we got on this segment, we were talking a little bit about how did we get here? Yeah. And maybe we can start the conversation, David, in some context around how did we end up where we're at right now? So I think if you take the last decade, uh, Putin and Russia uh, went on a few different uh, adventures where he used his military to invade other, other countries uh, and seize territory. He um, did it in Georgia in 2008. Uh, he did it in a very significant and concrete, uh, concretely relevant way to what we're seeing play out right now in Crimea. 2014. Um, and in both those circumstances, the West imposed some sanctions, uh, but in any real meaningful sense, uh, the Putin regime didn't really bear any uh, meaningful costs. And I think that sort of set a template where, in addition to I think a couple things playing out in the last uh, uh, year of the Biden presidency and before that the Trump administration where he thought the West was uh, uh, was totally uh, uncoordinated, disunited, um, chaotic and didn't have much resolve. Uh, and I thought that he, I think that left him with the impression that he could go into Ukraine and there's some longer standing kind of historical perspective from Russia um, and, and how Ukraine fits into their concept of their own security. Um, but the bottom line is the last decade and a bit and in the last few years in particular, I think left uh, Putin thinking that he could get away with this without really suffering any significant costs. So he has gotten away with it before. <clears throat> yep. Crimea being the most recent example before yep. where we are today. So David, when we look at um, this whole situation, it just seems like no one's really doing anything, at least from a military perspective. So the question that's going around in chat groups right now is, is this going to lead to a military attack? Are, are, is NATO or any other allied forces going to get together? And do you believe that we are now going to head towards a war? 
I think there's an awful lot of effort being taken to do everything we can, um, but staying below that threshold. So to your, to your point, the opener about whether or not you know this is the potential for World War III, I, I would say that there's a lot greater risk today um, that we could be in that scenario than there has been in decades. Uh, and that's because I think it's a little bit difficult uh, for us in Canada to get our heads around this, uh, that this is the Russian government, a nuclear-armed uh, state, the, the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world, multiple other weapons of mass destruction, that's invaded another country whose interest Canada is aligned with. Um, but this is very different than um, the last sort of several decades of, of Canadian experience where we've been involved in other states where there's sort of peripheral interests and fourth and fifth rate fighting forces and militaries. This is Russia. It's very different. Uh, and we have to calibrate everything we're doing against the potential of escalating this conflict against a very capable nuclear armed power, even if they have been experiencing some difficulties in the Ukraine in the last uh, week and a half that maybe they didn't expect. If you were a betting person, well, what percentage probability do you think that we're heading to an actual military war? Um, I still would keep it fairly low. A um, couple of reasons for that. Uh, one, the U.S. government, the Biden administration, was pretty categorical at the beginning uh, of this, you know, really ramping up about a month or so ago to, to rule out sending American forces. He's taken a lot of criticism from that. And as you said, there's lots of speculation about, uh, you know, we should do various different measures, including no-fly zones, which would require us to go to war with Russia, to be clear. Um, if the Americans have said that that's off the table, then that really circumscribes most of the options for, for virtually anybody else. Uh, and then the second thing that gives me some confidence that that's not going to happen is that we've been very well coordinated as a Western alliance. This is all all the different a actions and just kind of the breathtaking changes in foreign policy, uh, arms shipments uh, from a whole host of countries has all been done in pretty close uh, collaboration. So I think that we've managed to stay in lockstep. I, th I do think, though, that there is, there's a there's a non-zero chance that this escalates, just given how many weapons were flooding into the region uh, and the possibility that the uh, Putin and his cronies look at this um, and don't understand what we're doing the same way that we do. When it when it comes to this conflict and where Canada stands, um, friends of mine who are from outside of Canada kind of uh, joke about the presence of Canada when it comes to conflict like this. It's like we're the little cousin at the family fight reaching out once in a while behind our big brother saying, yeah, you can't do that. Or yeah, we're going to come after you as long as big brother USA is beside us. We don't really take a big stance, at least from a military perspective or uh, from a leadership perspective. We kind of wait for the other countries to step first and then we join. What can Canada do in this situation? Do we just sit back and let the, the, the bigger military groups and countries get involved and then we'll support? Or do we actually take a leadership stance and actually start something that maybe we we should be a leader in? So they, we can play a couple different ways. And I think that the government, to give the Trudeau government credit, uh, has actually been taking up some some of the leadership uh, roles uh, with regard to the financial sanctions. You know, there's kind of two broad swaths of what uh, is happening here. So you're seeing a military response, um, which has worked kind of along two axes. One is reinforcing NATO countries. Uh, there's a parts of NATO that literally border this conflict zone uh, or border uh, Belarus where a lot of the Russian forces are, have mass. So those countries have some pretty significant and real and understandable concerns about, you know, what happens if instead of facing south, those Russian forces uh, head west and towards their border. So we're doing some things to reinforce that. Um, sending a, uh, not huge numbers of, of troops, but sending troops um, and providing some uh, aerial resupply, which is always kind of a, an asset that's you can never have enough of. And the other thing we're doing is, is we're doing 
providing some resupply, um, providing some equipment to the Ukrainians. That's not nearly as significant as what some of our allies are doing. You know, they've got bigger, better missiles um, as an example, but we're kind of doing our part. But the financial piece, um, there's been a lot of good reporting uh, that our Deputy Prime Minister in particular has really kind of led that effort. Uh, and I think that the, the collective view is that that's one of the big ways that uh, hopefully we get the Russians to change their calculus. It's becoming incredibly difficult for the Russian economy uh, to function. I mean, we'll see when their stock market can reopen uh, and, and what the devastation to that looks like. Um, so I, I think in a lot of cases, you know, militarily, we can't go fight on our own to very significant extents without American support. We can do a lot of other things, though, if we want to uh, actually step up and lead. Uh, David, just very quickly, sort of as a setup to the next segment, I'd like to get your, um, we've seen some escalation, some uh, significant escalation over the past several days. I'd like to just get you to bring us up to speed of where we are in this conflict right now, and then we're going to take a break after that. We'll come back and then talk about what some of the potential resolutions and the path, uh, different paths to resolving this might be. So just very quickly, where are we right now in this conflict? Where we are is that the Russian had to, Russian game plan had to change from uh, hope that it would appear that in a couple of days only they could roll relatively light numbers of forces, take some key parts of the country just by literally driving down the road, flying in a few helicopters and doing very limited airstrikes on select military targets. Um, that hasn't worked out. Um, keeping in mind we're only a week and a half into this, the Russians have changed tactics. They're sending in a lot more forces and are starting to uh, pound uh, civilian areas, civilian infrastructure uh, with missiles and rockets. Um, so things are starting to get quite a bit messier than they had been in the first couple of days. I'm interested now to switch gears a little bit uh, and get your take on uh, where, what are the various paths forward here and what can we what can we expect? I think at this point, unfortunately, the various paths forward, um, all the options look bad uh, and what's impossible uh, routes to de-escalate this are still murky at this point in time. Um, I think, you know, despite what seems, I think there's a legitimately been a much more meaningful than expected ability on the Ukrainians' parts to put up a good fight here. Uh, but the math is working against them. The Russians have a lot more forces. They have a lot of um, air power. They have a lot of long-range missiles that they haven't actually used to uh, as nearly as much as they could uh, to this point in time. Um, but it looks like increasingly in the last three or four days, they're starting to. And so the, the distribution of the Ukrainian forces across their entire country is going to become increasingly tenuous, I think, because despite um, what I think is has been a very sophisticated information campaign on the part of the Ukrainians, um, the highlighting their, their localized tactical successes in different places. Um, unfortunately, if you look at the maps uh, that people are putting up about the, the locations of Russian forces, particularly in the south and the southeast, the lines that the Russians, uh, uh, Russian territory that the, sorry, the Ukrainian territory the Russians are moving for through keeps expanding. They stalled a little bit around the capital, uh, north of the capital in Kiev. Um, they've encircled other cities, uh, and they're taking now. Um, it looks almost as if they've completed a strip of land which would connect Crimea to Russia, which would be a, a significant strategic advantage for the Russians. That's a, a key um, piece of real estate on the Black Sea, and if you can connect it by land to Russia, that would be uh, a success for the Russians, the whole West, um, NATO countries in particular, is just looking to flood Ukraine with arms. Um, 
we'll see how much of that can actually get in and get used. Um, but I think on if even if that's successful, it's shaping up to a situation where the Russians are going to be dragged into a, a longer-term fight, um, which is unfortunately going to inflict a lot, inflict a lot of civilian casualties. Uh, I think we'll have to watch over the next couple of weeks exactly how much pressure can build up in Russia itself. Because uh, if, if you were sitting in the Kremlin right now, I, I think unfortunately the scenarios um, from their vantage point would look at grinding this out and winning in Ukraine uh, or swinging from the end of a rope. Um, I'm not clear at this point what other kind of uh, avenues are, are open to the, the Russian regime at the moment. David, there's there's a lot of um, change happening economically and in the trade of goods. So we're talking fertilizer, grain, potentially oil shipments and so forth. Um, all those three areas sound like something that Canada's pretty good at. We have a lot of. We could share it with the world. Now, I know we have a problem with this, uh, with the oil side, because hey, we were kind of missing a few pipelines that we could have used uh, for this situation. Um, how does Canada play a role on the economic side? And, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that, um, that this is a, a place for opportunity, but sometimes in conflict rises opportunity. And this is an opportunity for us to take some more global market share. Where does Canada fit in this? And is it possible that we're going to get more market share than we've had before this conflict started? I would hope so. I mean, to your point, I think as a country, we've been incredibly short-sighted to um, prohibit our energy re resources from reaching global markets um, to the fullest extent that they could because, uh, boy, uh, Canadian natural gas uh, could sure come in handy right now in parts of Europe, um, either just to, yeah. to replace the interrupted supply that's a, that's um, come up through this and the, the cancellation of the permitting process on, on Nord Stream 2, but, you know, the, the Germans are still getting uh, Russian gas. And uh, at least on my read of the, the economic measures, the one aspect of Russian economic activity that's still open is, is their oil and gas exports because the world needs it. Um, but, you know, certainly there's, there's ways to supply this. Um, elsewhere uh, I wonder whether or not there's a potential to, to use some of the existing infrastructure that reaches into the US and use their export terminals as an example you know have Canadian uh, gas get supplied into the American market and use American uh, export facilities um, I, there's projects underway certainly to get more of Canada's energy to world markets um, I don't think though that any of those uh, you folks would likely know better on this but uh, that stuff's not ready to turn on next Monday unfortunately um, but boy if you get in a time machine and uh, better position this country there'd sure be a way to help in a concrete way if we had uh, made some better choices a few years ago. Uh, David, to the extent that you can comment on this, I know you're not an economist, but it, it sure seems quite evident uh, that there's a military war happening in Ukraine and Russia. The rest of the world seems to be waging an economic war uh, for the most part at this point, um, and this, it seems to be escalating as well. Maybe talk to us a little bit about what we might expect to see from a global economic perspective to the extent that you can, given the options in front of the you know, the rest of the world, if we're not going to take it in a, on, a, on a military level. So I, mean, I think the energy piece uh, is key. I mean, Russia is a consequential contributor to global energy markets. Um, that, like I said, that's the remaining piece of their economy that still seems to be largely functional, although I recognize there's a bunch of the, the banking instruments are going to make some of the transactions there more complicated. Um, if we go after that, uh, then you have to to be able to, to take up that supply somewhere else. But as we're already seeing right now, the price of the pumps where I'm at in Ottawa uh, is crazy uh, in the last uh, week and a bit to, to see the change in the prices. So that that's going to have a flow through impact across markets. Um, 
Ukraine's also a fairly meaningful producer of a number of key commodities, um, fertilizer, um, some uh, grains as an example. So, uh, you know, I don't think anybody at this point can expect that the Ukrainian output of anything at the moment um, is going to be anything close to what it was, uh, you know, two, three months ago. So picking up, uh, uh, taking over from those impacts on the world economy is going to be consequential. Uh, and then you're going to, we're going to need to think uh, more broadly about how what's uh, at last count that I saw already a million displaced people um, that have fled Ukraine and a number that's going to grow even further. Uh, and then the the last piece would be even if this conflict uh, were to end by the time that we wrap this uh, discussion, there's going to be tens of billions of dollars worth of reconstruction that's going to be needed in Ukraine just to fix the devastation that's been uh, created to date. Um, so big time disruptions uh, to, to try and unwind uh, in the years ahead. David, if we've got about a minute and a half left before we have to go to commercial break. Um, if you're sitting in the prime minister's chair right now, top three things you would do with this whole uh, conflict going on, uh, what would you do? One, I'd look to, to try and make, a, to step up the, the humanitarian commitment. Um, we've looked at we've had situations the last 10 20 years where there's lots of uh you know there's lots of good Canada can do in the world from a humanitarian point of view uh given the just the sheer scope of the interpersonal connections between ukrainian canadians in that country i think there's a lot more that we could do uh in terms of helping those people that have that have fled i think the second thing that we should really look at is uh reevaluating as we said um, our position in the global energy market um, i think this has highlighted the fact that there's definitely a demand to have um, uh, more secure from all kinds of perspective uh, sources of energy on the international market, something that Canada could tap. And I think the last thing, um, Canada needs to reevaluate our approach to international affairs and defense. I think we're seeing right now um, a number of the shortcomings in some of our assumptions, uh, which had basically never assumed that the Russians were going to do anything like this on this scale. David, I want to thank you very much for taking some time with us today. We appreciate your insights. Good to talk to you. I'm going to, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Okay? I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's this old adage that goes like this, buy low, sell high. Shut up. Wait a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it up a bit on you. Sell high and buy low. <laughs> okay, so great tee up because this is the secret of success in an investment portfolio. People have always said buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. So now you've sold high, what the heck do you do? Mm. Go find something else that's low. Which is, is counterintuitive. It's very hard for... You know, listen, everybody understands emotionally when you tell people, when you say that. My brother bugs me all the time. That's why I, we're having a bit of... It's a bit cheeky that we're, we're positioning it the way it is. But my brother's bugging me all the time. Buy low, sell high, buy low, because that's been such a cliche He sends so me long. emails now and yeah, then saying, hey, Faisal, don't forget to buy. You know, we've, yeah. got, we've got a butcher right. who owns a, one of the best <laughs> meat companies in northern Alberta telling me how to manage money. Yeah, yeah, buy low, sell high. Okay. But, but often the real trick is to, uh, is to remain disciplined and structured, which means that uh, when your positions that are doing very well continue to run, do you just let them run? What's the risk of doing that? Mm. So let me, let me go through an example. So we have <laughs> um, a percentage, about 11% of our portfolio and the growth side of our portfolio in energy. Mm -hmm. Okay, Energy has run up done very well. Yep. Do you let it continue to run up? Now, possibly, possibly. That's one option. Uh, the, the, the discipline behind the, your portfolio needs to be based upon a certain allocation of your investments in certain areas. Let's go back to energy. 
if our thesis is that we should have 11% of our portfolio in energy because that gives us the right risk return matrix and it yep. follows along with everything else we have in the portfolio, then we stick to 11%. Right. Why would we raise it or, de or decrease it is based upon an economic and fundamental thesis, not purely because it's run up. And risk management. There's a whole risk bunch of reasons, right? Yeah. So if we believe it's a, it should stay at 11%, and because of the uptick in the market of energy companies, the portfolio now, it's weighted 13, 15, 17% in energy. Right. That's way too high for our thesis. Right. We take some profit. Bingo. Take some profit. I have never seen so many people be upset with taking profit. Right. And I learned... 24 years ago, <laughs> been doing this for 25. I learned 24 years ago, Dave, that I've never ever seen anybody go broke taking profit. Right. Ever. Right. But it goes back to the discipline too, right? It, it, it's weird in two fronts. It's weird that you're taking profit and people get frustrated. I get the emotional reaction to it. That's our winner, that's our winner, let it run, let it run, let it run. Yeah. But if anybody's ever done that in the past, um, and you've had something cyclical like oil roll over on you. Technology. Technology, right. It, it becomes a problem, right? And this is the structure and the discipline. So it goes back to your point. Boy, if we, if we mirror, if we mirror um, or attach, sorry, I was trying to say marry. Let's marry structure, discipline, and profit-taking. Mm. How do you go wrong? Mm -hmm. How do you go wrong over the long term? So on an ongoing basis, regular, timely, structured, Dave, you and I sit down in my office, we go through the portfolio, and we say it's time. Right. It's not time because the market said so, it's time because the structure and discipline says so. Correct. And so when we start taking profits, the question is what do you do with that capital? Oh yeah, we gotta get to the other side of this. Right, so yeah, you take a profit, <clears throat> you can sit in cash. Cash is an option, mm -hmm. but what do you do with that money? At some point, cash is not worthwhile holding. Let's take our profit and sit in cash, which is an option. The other option is, let's buy what's down. Well, that drives people crazy. Oh, like, why would you buy an investment that is down? <laughs> why did you sell something that's going up to buy something that's down? This is the only time in any type of market that someone would be upset for buying something that's cheaper than it was last week right, on a or last month or last year. Yeah. I don't understand that concept. Right. If the price of a car dropped 25%, would you not say, let's buy it? If the fundamental purchase of that vehicle is that you need it for your family to take you from point A to point B and it's the right vehicle right. for you, right. fundamentally, but the price is 25% cheaper, would you say, no, 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 I'll wait till the price goes up and then I'll buy it? Right. Why do we do that in the markets? Right. Yeah, so it's important to explore both sides of that, right? So again, being a little bit cheeky in the way we said it, but it, it, it'll resonate with people. We know the buy low, sell high. Okay, that sounds easy, but the problem is when you buy low, you have to sell something at a discount that's not attractive right now. And you have to sell it when it's attractive. And to remain disciplined, you have to sell the stuff that sure seems emotionally attractive and buy the stuff that's Let's unattractive. Let's define attractive. Because attractive to you and I is different than attractive to the average investor. Fair. What's attractive to the average investor is something that's going up. Yeah, yeah, 100%. What's attractive to you and I is something that's being valued at, at a lower price, that we can buy it and get growth for free. Right. I am cheap. 
I can vouch for that. I am cheap because I like to buy things that will give me growth for free. Mm -hmm. I don't want to pay for it. Right. I never pay for growth. Right. I always earn it. Let it do its job and I get the growth out of it. Yep. I am cheap in that way. Right. What about the big bets people prepared to make? I mean, so one, one of the ways people make big bets, big bets without, you know, you talk cash. We've talked that one before. But it's this notion of concentration risk, mm -hmm. right? So here's the other thing I want to maybe raise awareness around uh, from an educational perspective is as you let your winners run and you, and you don't execute discipline around uh, maintaining position sizing and pro proper positions, you, you inherently build up concentration risk Correct. in certain stocks, in certain segments of the economy, whatever the case may be. And um, I don't think people fully appreciate how damaging that can be. Well, I think Calgarians, yeah, Albertans, yeah. and I'll pick on them because it happens in other parts of the world and other concentrated economic areas, but let's pick on Albertans. They know that when the oil market is tanking, they are in multiple impacts. Right. Most Albertans that we've spoken to during the downpour of 2014-15, when they came to us and said, look at my diversified portfolio, right. Dave and Faisal, I can't believe this is going down. I've got 13 different energy stocks and four Canadian uh, equity mutual funds. Why is it going down? Well, you're not diversified. Right. You're just concentrated. Right. You're just concentrated with different names. Right. And so having concentration risk exponentially grows the opportunity for bigger losses. Right. And you enhance the risk, the timing risk that you have to take. Hear that again though, Dave. Yep. Exponentially grow your risk as your concentration increases. Right. Now, you want to make big money? Concentrate. Right. Put everything on one investment and let it ride. Assuming it goes up. Assuming it goes up. But you're also on the other side of that and if it goes down, you're going to have exponential losses. Yeah. And the timing risk of those decisions becomes so critical, right? And so, listen, not saying if you should do or not do it, everything, you know, it is, uh, everybody has to make their own decisions about what's suitable and appropriate for their own objectives. Absolutely. And right? get the proper advice. That's right. Just get the proper do advice. Do the proper research. Right. Right. Make sure you've got the right team in place. And this is going to be my next piece about this, is that there's no coordinated effect to all this. Correct. There's the investment portfolio side. People are looking at money management, buying and selling and all this stuff. But it doesn't translate over to the other side of the equation. When I'm speaking to accountants right now, as we're getting closer and closer to tax deadline, RSP season's now done, tax deadline's coming, and I'm speaking to accountants, and they're, they're not like looking at me saying, we should be realizing some capital gains. We should be taking some. There's no strategy in place from the client, from the individual. We actually have to go to the account and build strategy. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm finding more and more of peers in our industry not doing this. They're just focused on the investment side and leave the tax side of it. When people say it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep, they're right when it comes to taxes. Right. And we, so when you take that, and, and you, there's a couple of things you said. There's this, there is the siloed thinking about the impact of oil and gas on all of your assets in Calgary. Like there's a whole bunch of different siloed thinking. So I think the, the, important, the important thing for people to do is to say, I have all, this is all of my wealth. And I need to have strategies around all of my wealth, whether it's my tax, my exposure on my principal residence, how much I've got in, invested in energy if you're in Calgary, right? Whatever the case may be. 
all of those things need to be taken into consideration yeah. with respect to the goals and objectives of family dynamics that you have, right, Absolutely. as a family. Absolutely. And so when you're building out this, this <clears throat> program to bulletproof your retirement, to make sure that you have the lifestyle you yep. want, protect you on in the event of a health issue, making sure you leave money behind to the people you want to leave behind when you pass away, all of these concerns that come up and minimize tax along the way, you need a proper strategy. Yep, you need a proper structure, discipline, and you need that approach to bulletproof your retirement. And we're gonna show you our solution to that problem at our upcoming webinar on Tuesday, March 29th, 7 p.m. live online. You need to register for this. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Well, on, my, uh, on behalf of myself and Faisal, uh, we look forward to seeing you at the seminar. Look forward also to seeing you next week. Uh, take care. We'll chat with you then. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Se on, uh, More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.